This morning's scripture reading comes from Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. It can be found starting on page 828 in the Bible under your seat. Matthew 22, 34 through 40. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. My name is Mike. I'm the teaching pastor here at Trinity. Really grateful to be worshiping with you this morning. When I was out in the lobby before the service, um, one of our members here, John Stevenson, came up to me and, and warned me that he had been told by multiple people that they're very tired and sleepy this morning. And he, he knew how ideal that was for a preacher to hear immediately before <laughs> doing a service. So fair warning, I think my plan at this point is just to shout the whole time. I'll just yell the whole thing. Well, in any case, so this is one of those passages where it's, it's very, very short, and it's pretty to the point, at least, you know, so I started, you know, researching it and, and studying it, I was like, this is going to be a 15-minute sermon, and then the next day I was going to be, this sermon's going to be an hour and a half. Like, it just, it's, there's a lot here, but I'm, I'm realizing, though, that I feel like that about every passage of Scripture, that might never change, so... But this one is a really huge passage, and here's why it's huge. It's huge because it summarizes what it is. So like, as, as those of us who consider ourselves followers of, of Jesus, what is it that we are discipling ourselves to him to learn? What is it that we're seeking to learn from Jesus? This passage summarizes it. This is a passage where Jesus is going to summarize what following him is all about. And so it's a pretty huge passage. And it might not be immediately obvious that that's what this passage is about. It's like, well, what I just heard was a lawyer talking to Jesus about the law, like the Jewish law. What does that have to do with Jesus? Sometimes we can kind of have this impression that Jesus kind of started something new. He's not really associated with all that stuff in the Old Testament. So what does he really have in common with it? And it turns out quite a bit. The thing that we have to understand is that Jesus didn't see himself as as like charting new territory in terms of like the mission of God. In fact, there was a very famous sermon that, that Jesus preached, and at one point in the sermon he, he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. In other words, what the, what the law set out to do was to restore people to God and to their purpose. And Jesus has now shown up to restore people to God and to their purpose. He isn't doing away with, with the whole previous project. He's bringing it to fulfillment. He he's coming to establish the way of God right in our broken, sad world. He wasn't launching a new agenda. He's launching a new people. So what we're going to see Jesus do in this passage is distill into a couple sentences, not only what the law is about, but what, we should, what our ears should be perked up to, to hear is that he's summarizing what following him is all about. So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to take it like this. We're going to first see the question, 
posed to Jesus, the answer from Jesus, and then I'll, I'll share some reflections from the, the broader Christian Hebrew scriptures on some reasons for Jesus' answer. So first, the question. So when the Pharisees heard that, he had silenced, when G, that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test him. Jesus, which is the great commandment or the greatest commandment in the law? So we've been going along in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're at this point where, where Jesus has made a pilgrimage into Jerusalem for Passover week, and he's getting questioned by a whole bunch of, of different people, testing him on, on different subjects. In today's passage, he's approached by uh, what the, the text calls a lawyer. So when we hear lawyer, we think of a person who represents someone in court, and we, we shouldn't think, of, think that when we hear this word. Instead, think expert in the law. So this lawyer, he, he's a guy who would have studied what's called the Torah, or the Torah, the, the law of, of the Hebrew scriptures. He would have spent his days studying all 613 laws, pouring over the text, trying to kind of integrate them, t- tease it apart. He, he, a lot of what he would do would be like figure out how to practice the kosher laws in their time, how to enforce the moral codes when they're living under uh, like, in other words, they, they aren't the governing power, so how do we enforce the moral codes under a different governing power? He would have been also protecting any translating that was taking place, so making sure that, the tran- that there wasn't like a, a drift in meaning in the translations. He would have been critiquing different teachings to make sure that it actually lined up with the sense of God's law. So he had this huge role to play. And we hear that, and we think, that sounds horrible, how could you get more tedious, right? Like, just like studying the law sounds very dusty and tedious. And I think a lot of that is because we actually think poorly about the law in the Hebrew Scriptures. We're out, actually the ones out of touch, not them. We tend to be the ones who think, oh, like the law, that's this lifeless, kind of arbitrary thing that I find at the beginning of my Bible that is really useful for insomnia, right? At best, we see it as just cheerless, legalistic garbage. At worst, we might see it as a monument to patriarchy. And so we think of this lawyer as just this kind of like pathetic servant to a dead text. But that's our problem. So the Hebrews believed that they had been graciously called out to have a personal relationship with the Creator. They believed that they had been called to be His people. And so a big part of what came with that whole idea was this, was this thing that in being called out as God's people, they were going to be shown God's design for life in their time and place. They were going to, it was going to be revealed to them how life was meant to be lived. And so they, they saw the law not as this like cheerless document, but as an entryway into God's will, into life itself. Like, just, just read some of the Psalms. Psalm 119, where, where I mean, this giant thing, this giant contemplation on the, the word of God. What's David talking about, or the, the psalmist talking about in, that, in that, that psalm? He's talking about the law in, like, Leviticus. He's talking about these things that we use to cure insomnia. He's talking about the glory that's actually revealed there for those of us who have eyes to see. So uh, 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 sort of the way that they would have seen the law is sort of the way that I see my wedding vows. Like, I don't look back on my wedding vows and, and read, like, to have and to hold, to love and cherish. This is so legalistic, right? That would be ridiculous if I related my wedding vows that way. No, instead, when I read my vows, I see a way of life. 
I see a way of life that comes with my identity as a husband. This is what it means to be Ashley's husband, to love and to cherish, to have and to hold. It isn't this lifeless, arbitrary thing. It is a way of life and a source of life. That If I abide by these things, somehow I can actually trust that, that, that life will be the result. The law was, was like that. The law was the way of life that went with Israel's identity. It was the way of life that went with the identity of being the people of God. It revealed what it would mean to be God's people in their time and place. And so that's why the job of the lawyer was so important. It's important to understand what God expects of his people. It's important for us to understand what it really means to live according to the identity we have in Christ. So this lawyer's job was to make sure that God's people knew what following God was all about. In fact, I have a picture up here that I thought was kind of cool. It's of a bunch of students holding a Torah scroll. So that would have been like something that he would have been studying, poring over day after day, and, and kind of trying to draw it out for, for those folks what, what needed to change, what needed to happen. And of course, this wasn't always easy. There, there are 613 laws in the Torah by, by one count. Some of them were huge, these giant monolithic kind of pillars, like you shall worship the Lord your God only, right? That's a giant, like, you know, don't kill people. Another big monolithic thing. And then it'd be be written right alongside laws such as don't boil the meat of a goat in its mother's milk. Don't wear mixed garments. And so what you have over over time is this, this question of like, okay, so what do we give priority to? Is it all just sort of level? All of these different laws are just kind of all on the same field? Or are there some that that have priority? And so over time, these discussions would start where folks would try to sort of condense the law. And that doesn't mean that they were trying to do away with, with parts of it. It's just that they were trying to get at kind of the core so that there'd be more of an entry point to understand it. Right? Because it's fine for lawyers and experts of the law to memorize the whole thing and argue about it, but for the rest of the folks who get up early and take the train to the office, how are they supposed to live like God's people in the everyday? They needed, we need something simpler to hold on to as an entry point, not to do away with the rest of, of the commands, but instead to understand like this is, this is the project, right? This is the core. And so scholars started going back and forth sort of trying out different ways to summarize what the law was ultimately about. So a couple of things that they would do, you had some that, that, would say, that would say the law is about 11 things, and they would use Psalm 15 as like a way of, of describing that. Or no, 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 it's, it's about six things, and they'd use another thing, or it's three things, and it's Micah 6.8. So it's all these different suggestions of how do you summarize the law? What, what have we been given to kind of find the, the core of this whole thing? What's that entry point for us to really start tackling and growing in all these other areas too. So what we're actually seeing in this moment when the lawyer asks this question, we're, we're seeing, you know, this is coming out of a, a debate that, that would have been pretty common, at least among the, the religious leadership in the first century. It might have even been going on for a couple centuries. So it was very much on the mind of minds of first century Jews. And in fact, if you'll remember, if you've been attending here for a little while and have walked through the Matthew series with us, this whole controversy, we've actually seen it come up at a couple different points in Jesus' ministry already. 
So you'll recall at one point Jesus walks into a synagogue and there's a man who needs to be healed. Now on one level, you know, they're, they're in the synagogue and it's the Sabbath. So the Sabbath would have been a Jewish day of rest, a day set aside for worshiping God. You don't do any work on that day. And miraculously healing lifelong diseases is certainly considered work. So on the one hand, you have Jesus walking in the synagogue, a man who needs healing. So you've got the Sabbath, or you've got this other part of the law where you, you take care of those in need. So what are you going to do? And of course, if you remember from the story, the Pharisees were pretty emphatic that you need to wait until the day after the Sabbath to do this. And what's amazing about Jesus is that he heals the man, but he doesn't think that he like, chose to love people over loving God. He doesn't play that game. Instead, he heals the man and says, I have succeeded in, like, I've loved God and people by healing this man. He's not playing this game of, of what do we give priority to. What the Pharisees see in that moment is this choice between loving people and loving God. And Jesus doesn't play that game. So that's the question on the table. What's the most important thing about following Jesus? What's following Jesus all about? So here's Jesus' answer. I think this is hugely relevant for us today. So people still wonder about this when it comes to Jesus. Like if you go into any coffee shop, go into a Starbucks, go into Hansa, and just pick two random people and ask them, what was Jesus and his teaching, what was that all about? I bet you you will get two completely different answers half the time. If you ask one person, I think what they'd say is that loving Jesus is about loving God. Jesus came to make you right with God. He came to provide the forgiveness of sins so that you're no longer alienated from God and now we can worship and be confident that God is for us and we can live a life responding to him rightly. And of course, this person wouldn't say that Jesus's like ethics are unimportant. They'd say, well, yeah, sure, of course, that's very important, love people and all that. But really, when it comes down to following Jesus, the main thing is about making sure we love the right God. And then you could ask another person, what's following Jesus all about? And they would say, Jesus came to teach us to love one another. It's all about loving one another. His ultimate message is that we should be kind to other people, and that teaching takes priority over all the others. So, of course, worshiping God is great, but ultimately, God cares the most about how people treat people. And so he's happy whether you worship him or not, whether you think that, whatever you think about ultimate reality, God is happy so long as you treat other people with kindness and generally live by the no, no harm principle, right? So unsurprisingly, these two sides sort of face off against each other, and it's like, no, it's loving God, no, it's loving people. And then sometimes it can be comical, and other times you can get caught up in it and, and kind of become one of the other side yourself. On the one hand, we have the fundamentalists. On the other, we have the universalists. And both of them believe that they've really got the core of what Jesus was all about. So am I making this up? Have you guys observed this too? I know I'm being a little bit artificial in the way that I'm saying it up. I know that's more nuanced than, than that, and the discussion is more complex. But I feel like this is still accurate, right? I think. <laughs> Not getting a lot from you guys. Some folks, <laughs> so some folks, in other words, emphasize like right belief, okay? So maybe think about it that way. Some folks kind of emphasize right belief, love God. And then other people emphasize ethics, so on the one hand, to live life well, you've got to come down on the right belief, believe in the right God, and on the other hand, 
we can kind of relativize for, for, for the other side. Belief is kind of secondary at best. At best, it's sort of like believe what you want, but just make sure that it's something that will shape you into an ethical person. So we like to do this. We sort of prioritize things. We like to rank the commands of God. And there's lots that's been written about how to worship God. There's lots that's been written about loving people. But if push comes to shove, what's most important for us as Christians? And Jesus just says both. Both. You don't get to prioritize. You don't get to say, well, yeah, I mean, these two are competing, but this one's a little bit higher. He just won't even play that game. He completely disregards the whole thing. For him, it is, a, it is a, an utterly false dichotomy. He says it's both. And he, so he quotes from two texts, both of them from the very law that this guy would have been studying, the Torah. Both texts are from the Torah. The first one is called the Shema. It's a, a prayer that many Jews to this day um, pray morning and evening. In fact, my family's been reading it uh, at the breakfast table <laughs> lately. Um, it's, it's the text that that, that Jesus quotes, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and, and mind and strength. And then again, he quotes from Leviticus 19, and he says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the key here is when he says, the second is like it. The second command that he's going to quote, in other words, is like the first. It comes across a little bit clearer in the Greek, but I still think it comes across in the English too, that Jesus is saying, you can't have one without the other. It's not that he's saying, here's the greatest commandment, oh, and while I'm at it, I'll tell you the one that has less priority. He's saying, here's the greatest commandment, love God and love people. One commandment. One will. One way. Love God and love people. Jesus is saying that if we are going to follow him, we have to hold these two things at once. A Christian doesn't find tension here. We love God. We love people. These are like two pillars that the entire teaching of the scriptures balance on. Remove one and the structure falls. Jesus is saying that if we practice love for God and do not practice love for people, we may be following somebody, but it's not Jesus. Now, on the other hand, if we practice love for people and do not practice love for God, we may be following somebody, but it is not Jesus. And the reason why is because the central teaching of Jesus wasn't just to love God. And the central teaching of Jesus wasn't just to love people. The central teaching of Jesus is repent and believe the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the kingdom of heaven is a reality in which the glory of God covers the earth as waters cover the sea. In which his worship is, is pervasive. Where all human hearts are turned toward their creator and therefore turned right back toward one another. Where love and care in close-knit community takes place wherever there are people. The kingdom of heaven is a reality where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's why it's very artificial to say that what Jesus was all about was just loving God. It's very artificial to say that what he was about was just loving people. Jesus came to bring the kingdom of heaven, which means he came to bring both.
So let's look at some reasons why this is the, the real heart of the Scriptures. And we're going to do this by asking a couple questions of the text. So the first question is, why love? Here's what strikes me right off the bat. There's a, there's a lot of commands that Jesus could have chosen to, to describe this. He could have chosen the first commandment, right? To, to worship the Lord your God alone. He could have chosen that one to describe kind of our relationship to God. He could have chosen a whole bunch of other ones for our relationship to people, right? You know, just different things about being fair to others, not coveting. I mean, there, there would have been a lot of sort of catch-all commandments that he could have chosen. Why did he choose love? He doesn't say that the law comes down to obedience. So, of course, if we're going to really listen to him, we're going to realize obedience is definitely going to come into play. But he doesn't say that it ultimately comes down to obedience. It comes down to love. And I think the reason why is because you can obey some of God's commands without loving God. And you can serve people's needs without loving people. So take God, for instance. You can show up on a Sunday gathering You can sing the songs, you can stay awake for the sermon, and then return home and Monday to Saturday live a life that from the outside looking in appears indifferent to to the Lord. You can live a life that ultimately is about just mitigating stress. You can live a life that's ultimately about just providing as much opportunity for yourself and your family as possible. You can live a life that's, that's ultimately just about pleasure and completely not live for anything greater than you. Completely not live with any consciousness that you're a creature with a purpose that far exceeds just yourself and your immediate gratification. Or take people. We can smile at folks. We can can develop ourselves into these amazing conversationalists where we just make people feel comfortable, and we can never let them know us. We can spend time with others and never really ask the hard questions. We can spend time but never really face those uncomfortable, awkward moments that come with really knowing someone when they are most open. We can obey God. We can serve people. And our hearts and our wills can be safely tucked out of sight. We get to keep a piece of ourselves for ourselves. But love asks Everything of us. The object of your love is the thing that has the greatest claim on you. Jesus is going past just behavior. He's going past obligation. He is touching on our very desires, on our affections, on our allegiances. Jesus says that we are to love God with our heart and soul and mind. The idea here is that with everything you are, love God. When we love God like this, we start to see that every, every like, context that we find ourselves in, it's just a new arena to, to creatively figure out how to respond to God the way he would have us respond. Every context of our lives, in our solitude, in our intimacy, in our close friendships, in, in our small groups, in our workplaces, and when we're at a concert, when we're at a ball game, wherever we are, each place is just a new context to, to, to look into God's word and figure out how do I respond? How do I take part in the life of God here? Every part of ourselves, heart, soul, and mind. 
He says that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. Unless a person is very sick mentally, they generally take care of themselves. They generally pay attention to themselves. It just comes more or less naturally that we sort of love ourselves. Like lots of stuff can go by the wayside, but most days I take a shower, right? So we generally love ourselves. We take care of ourselves. Jesus is saying that our love for neighbor should have that same kind of instinctive quality. That's just instinct for us. That we would love our neighbor so much that when they are in need, it's like a knee-jerk reaction to love and to pray and to be with them. The images of, of full-hearted, consistent love. Self-giving and costly. So following Jesus, we follow him to learn how to do both of these kinds of loves. It's not one and then the other. It's not one more than the other. It must be both all at once. It means worship and it means ethics. It means prayer and it means hospitality. It means loving God and loving people. The the kingdom of God is a reality where God is adored and people care for each other in close-knit community. It means the glory of God and it means the life of the world. And the only way into that kind of reality is through love. Through us, at our very core, being changed. So let's keep going. Why can't we have one without the other? So let's ask the next question. Why must we love God? Or to put it another way, why can't we just love people? So I think the short answer to this one is just that God exists. Why must we love God? Because he exists. Because he exists. Because we as creatures owe all things to God. In him all things live and move and have their being. That's the fundamental truth beneath all of our lives. Before we were employees, before we were friends, before we were even recognized as children, before our existence was known by anybody, we were creatures created by God. God is not an impersonal force like karma or source. He is a person, a being that exists in in this relationship of love between three persons, and he brings the world into being to include us in his life. Humans were made to take part in the life of God. We were made to take part in what God does in the world. We were made to take part in his love. That's the most fundamental truth of our existence. Everybody you meet on the street, everybody you meet at work or at a coffee shop, That's the fundamental truth of their existence, too. That all of us were made for God. That we do not belong to ourselves, but body and soul, and life and death, we belong to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that without that, every one of us is actually missing out. If that peace isn't in place, Every one of us is actually missing out on life, missing out on our deepest purpose. God didn't make us for drone-like obedience. He didn't make us for obligation. He made us for his love. He loves us through his grace, and we love him through the worship and praise and adoration 
that he, deserve, that he deserves. It's our most meaningful way of taking part in creation. It's the truest part of ourselves. So ultimately, we, we have to love God because that's the deepest truth of existence. God is the deepest truth of existence. There's no more fundamental reality than that God is. So I think culturally, out of the two commandments that we have here, I think this one is the most controversial. I think generally, if, if we go out and, and talk with most of our friends and, and create a poll, most folks that we know are going to be into the idea of loving people. The thing is, they're, they're not going to be as into the idea that we have to love God. That one kind of seems unnecessary in some ways. We sort of think like, well, at the end of the day, isn't it really about kind of being a good person, abiding by like the libertarian no harm principle, right? Like do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody, right? Which is a little bit condescending to me. But still, like that's, you know, kind of the, what we live by, right? Like we just live by this kind of paternalistic, like just don't hurt anybody, go have fun. Like, that, like that's the highest thing that we can live for. But culturally, I think that's kind of where we're at. You know, it's like, love people, be a generally good person, don't be a jerk, you know? And if you find it in your heart to, like, you know, dial back some of the square footage of your next home enough to give to charity, then you're, uh, you're varsity, you know? And that's our highest moral ideal. But I think the reason why, though, is because we, we have this way of thinking that, that, that what's necessary in life is, is moral in some ways, that like moral, morality is necessary, but I can have that without belief in God. Like, you know, I think if, if we just took a, you know, just a hand-raising pull of how many of us here know some very moral atheists, my guess is all of our hands would go up. Because we live in this, in this moment where it's like all that's really necessary is morality. And so, you know, I think most people think like, hey, Anybody can be moral. You don't need a belief in God to be a moral person. The issue is there's a, there's a big, big difference between being moral to somebody, being fair to somebody, and loving somebody. When you set out to love somebody, what you can give them is going to be decided by whatever truth you think is real. When I love somebody, I have to give them the best thing I have. And if the best thing we have is the no harm principle, then all that I'm really ever going to be able to love somebody toward is just the realization of their desires. Which I think is insulting. But there's nothing more that we have to give. But what if the truth is actually much, much deeper It's a quote I'd like to throw up on the screen. This is by the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. He writes, Truth makes love possible. Love makes truth bearable. We can all spend the next week contemplating that phrase. I love Rowan Williams. He's awesome. If God exists, then that changes the way we love. It makes love possible. Because if God exists, then to love another person is to constantly, intentionally encourage them to take part in the life of their creator. That's ultimately the best that I could possibly give somebody, is to help them remember why they were made. And that might exclude pleasure for the time being. It might put them in situations of deep discomfort. But because God exists, I'm confident that I can ask that of somebody 
and still call them to the greatest thing. And I hope that someone will do the same for me. I think that's what we mean when we talk about being together for growth as a church. That's part of the reason why we're doing gospel fluency this fall. You know, no resource is perfect. Gospel fluency has its flaws. But one thing it does really well is it encourages God's people to encourage each other with the gospel. It encourages God's people to encourage each other with the Lord. It reminds us to give each other God. There is no greater kind of love. Our greatest good is not our immediate comfort. The greatest evil is not to be told we're wrong. The greatest good for every one of us is to be invited over and over again to respond to God's grace. We cannot love fully. We cannot love people fully without the love of God. And so the truth about God makes love possible. And we aren't going to communicate that love like jerks. Because we also love people which is why love makes truth bearable. Thanks, Rowan Williams. You should check him out. He's really good. He will not agree with everything he says. (laughs) But now all good things things are like that. There's lots about Rowan Williams that I would disagree with. Just fair warning, but he's great. Anyway, so we must love, anyway, so love God, love people next. So why, why do we have to love people which, again, this is, this is the, the question that I think sounds most ridiculous in our cultural context. But in Jesus' day, I wonder if this one would have had more weight. And the Pharisees were dealing with these complex questions of what do you do with the law and, and how do you take care of people in the face of all this? Well, for them, it was, it was either one or the other. We're going we're gonna to love God and we're going to do it at the expense of people, right? But I also think this happens sometimes with, with oftentimes very well-meaning Christians who will launch charities, for instance, where, where like, we're helping people in need, but we're really doing it so that we can have an opportunity to, to preach the gospel to them, right? So the whole thing becomes a bait and switch, which just leaves me feeling really uneasy. In fact, I've been, I've been you know, party to planning sessions where people have suggested, how about we make the help contingent on whether or not they let us tell them the gospel? Like, Whoa! That is a weird thing to think, right? So I think this is a, this is a live option today. This whole thing of like, well, love God, but do we got, but do we have to love people all the time, or can we take care of this thing first and then we start doing that? I think it's still a live option for many believers, but we can't have one without the other. And ultimately, it's impossible to talk about loving God without loving people, because we can't love God without loving what he loves. Growing up, if I claimed to love my parents, and I just invariably disobeyed them, there would be cause for questioning my love, right? There would be reason for somebody to say, do you really love your parents? Because like, they're asking really reasonable snuff of you, and, and you just keep on saying no. So it looks like you don't. looks like you don't love them. Right? If I claimed to love my parents and just never listened to them, never figured out anything about them, never participated in the life of the home, I wouldn't love my parents. That wouldn't be any sort of real love. It wouldn't be any benefit to me either. To love God, we have to love people. In fact, something a little like mental exercise I did this week was I tried to see how long I could talk about loving God without talking about loving people. 
You should try to do that sometimes. It's really interesting what happens. You can't get very far. Eventually, in order to really say this is what it means to love God, you end up having to talk about caring for people. You end up having to talk about loving people. God himself, through the prophets, he, he said that he desired mercy more than sacrifice. In other words, the worship service, the sacrificial system, the worship service, the Sunday gathering, that is peripheral to God. I want mercy. God didn't make us for private spirituality. Like the highest good of humanity is not that we set aside an hour a day to read our Bible and pray. And yet to, be, to, to, to become what you're meant to be as a human, you may need to set aside an hour a day to read the Bible and pray. But that's not the highest good. That's not the goal. It's the means. God didn't make us for closet devotion. God didn't make us for an hour and a half, sometimes two hours depending on how Mike is preaching, on a Sunday. But again, we compartmentalize. God doesn't. Following Jesus is about all of life. Christian spirituality is life itself. It's living. We are part of the creation. We are meant to take part in God's life by taking part through love in the lives of others. God is asking everything of us for our good. There is life on the other side of following God. He didn't make us for Sunday morning. And yet, to live the life that he made you for, you're going to want to show up as often as you can on Sunday morning to be with God's people. To live the life he made you for, you're going to need to read his word, to understand what it is that he made you for. To live the life he made you for, you're going to have to pray incessantly. But it is about all of life. We have to love people because we are interconnected in this giant web of community. And we're being deceived to to not believe that because we live in such an atomistic, individualized culture. But the truth is that we are made for each other. Eugene Peterson, the famous pastor, once said that you are not yourself when you are by yourself. You were made for community. So you have to love God. And you have to love people. So how do we start? I think we can think about this. We, we can see this giant vision of what we're made for. And sometimes we, we just end up with just total discouragement. A sense of like, I just so, so fall short of that. And I, and I hope it's clear from the words of, of Jesus that like, he knows you fall short. He knows that you're not this yet. And he has given you more than sufficient grace. He has given you so much grace. There is, there, there is forgiveness for every way that you fall short. And there's even more grace to help you along the way. He has given you grace to begin to learn. This is what following Jesus is all about. We don't follow Jesus by arriving immediately at our conversion, right? 
perfect, beam me up, right? That's totally not, that's not what this is about. It's not how it plays out. It's about receiving and responding to the grace of God and then learning what this whole thing is about from our Lord. And we do it because he first loved us. We love God because he first loved us. And we see that most of all on the cross of Christ. Jesus knows that we fall short. Otherwise, why did he die? He died because we fall short. And God doesn't think that our sin should be an excuse for, like, jettisoning the whole human project. God doesn't think sin is enough to have the final word on people. His forgiveness will be the final word on people. That is the cross of Christ. It is a bold announcement that, yes, you fall absolutely short, and God's grace is sufficient for every single way. One of the writers of the New Testament named John, he writes this, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the consistent teaching of Scripture. But remember that first line, we love because he first loved us. So how do we start? It isn't by muscling out some new moral courage. We start by dwelling on the grace and love of God for us. By letting his love overwhelm us. By, by becoming naive all over again with the gospel and relearning what a wonderful thing it is to hear that Jesus loves me, this I know. That's how we start. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your love. God, I pray that you would give us the the encouragement and the grace to, to learn your way. God, I pray that we would increasingly be people who love God and love others as ourselves. Help us to, to learn what it is to rely on you. to give ourselves as much grace as you give us, and yet to still be tireless in pursuing you. We love you, Lord. And it's only by your grace that, that we're here this morning. It's only by your grace that we get to hear your words. It's only by your grace that we exist and get to take part in the life of God. Thank you.